Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. All right. Raymond Gregory, worship pastor at Calvary Chapel East Anaheim in Southern California. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me to talk through some of your concerns uh, about more progressive forms of Christianity, or maybe I should say Protestantism, because that's what we're both dealing with here is Protestant Christianity. It sounds like maybe a good way to start would be to talk a little bit about sociopolitics. And we were chatting a little before the sort of hyper-politicization of different forms of Protestantism in America. So I don't know, where, where would you start if you were going to be talking about that issue? I'll play devil's advocate with my own camp. I think a lot of this has been allowed to surface because of the whole, the, the Trump era evangelicals. It seems like evangelicals is now more and more synonymous with Trump follower or yeah. then sometimes Christ follower, which is, that's not at all right or should it be the direction that we're going in? We, it says in Galatians that obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of man, but of God. If I were winning the approval of man, I would not be Christ's follower. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is people see there's a lot of trying to please man in one in particular and one camp in particular. And so for us, that doesn't look like a Christ follower. And so the, the problem is, is when we have this collectivist view, it's like, everybody in the evangelical camp 
is this caricature, you know, with a red hat and a, and a flag on the back of his truck and thin blue line, all that stuff. None of which I don't think is bad, but when it takes front seat to theology, when it takes front seat to really following Christ and making decisions out of what Christ has said, instead of what meme you saw, you know, about the other side of the aisle, that's a dangerous thing. And so I see it kind of going both ways. And I I think, especially in the progressive camp, younger people seem to be drawn to it. Uh, Obviously there's the, the, there's all kinds of buzzwords on both sides, like deconstruction, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit, but, um, and so, yeah, I think it's pretty dangerous to have super highly polarized views of each other, but never actually sitting down and talking about what those views are and whether there's a crossover, make a Venn diagram of, of the two people and see where we, where we differ. I think it was St. Augustine that said, you know, in essentials, unity, which I think we, we desire to have in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity or love. Mm-hmm. And then Christ said, your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. Yeah, and so if if this whole polarization is is getting in the way of love, I think it's a bad thing, and so it's a good thing to talk about. Well, I agree. Um, I know you didn't listen to it, and probably most people who listen to this show have not listened to it. Just doing the math, but I ran a podcast called Depolarize for three seasons over about two and a half years, and that was kind of the central conceit was understanding and and to some degree arguing against those forces of polarization. It started out trying to understand the Trump evangelical phenomenon. And so I have tons of thoughts about that, that were formed over many years and many conversations with people who knew more than I did about that stuff. So I I certainly agree with you there to the point where I dedicated, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours to that project, to understanding it and combating it. Uh, Because the kind of tribalism that comes with deep partisanship, I I, I agree with you, is not only antithetical to being a follower of Christ, it's also antithetical to what appears to be just a a reality-centered worldview or, or, you know, just just truth in general, small t truth. We know enough now about sort of tribal psychology that it just distorts things. It distorts our understanding of the world. We, we, you know, it's become a lot more common in in the popular lexicon, things like confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. Thankfully, people are, are kind of becoming aware of these principles and it's just a distortion. It's just seeing through a glass even more darkly, you know, it's sort of like choosing the darker glass to see through, you know, Paul, Paul would be like, why the hell would you want to see through a glass more darkly? You know, like it's already bad enough just being, humans, you know, with our own temporal and cultural, you know, biases. So I'm totally with you on all that. I am kind of curious, like specifically coming from, so being at a Calvary Chapel church, uh, with, which really quickly, if people don't know what that is, my wife actually grew up at Calvary Chapel and I, uh, one of my very best friends growing up was Calvary Chapel. And it's one of the early Jesus movement denominations, maybe it's the Jesus movement denomination that got going in the 1970s in Southern California, Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California. And he he was essentially, in my view, mostly kind of a Baptist fundamentalist when it came to the text and theology. 
but mm-hmm. he was very open aesthetically and culturally to to dirty hippies and young people. Mm-hmm. So he's the one who said, rip up the carpets. If the carpets are getting dirty, we can do church on the wood floor, which we can sweep afterward, you know, and that kind of a thing, which led to really a, a massive movement. The vineyard and Calvary Chapel broke off from each other. And mm-hmm. actually the kind of California tinged evangelicalism that I was raised in shared a lot of DNA with Calvary Chapel. I think partly geograph for geographical reasons. Uh, I grew up in San Jose, by the way. Okay. Yeah. So that that's kind of the background. So from your time there at an Anaheim Calvary Chapel, you know, in that setting, I'm curious, you have had better eyes on the ground than I've had as pertains to the right side of this equation, the the evangelicals who have found themselves drifting more and more toward the cult of personality of, of Donald Trump himself and yeah. the kind of Newsmax, Fox News, Tucker Carlson, sort of all the cadre around him. Uh, anything you can tell us just from your own experience of that, um, that might that might sort of tie back into the rest of this conversation? So uh, I've been at this church. It's a Calvary Chapel for three and a half years before I was at this church, it was a church called Harvest, which was actually the second Calvary Chapel until they broke off into their own name. Oh, okay. The whole the whole thing with Calvary Chapel is non-denominational, but it it it, it has some tinge of denomination to it. Obviously, yeah. It, it's hard not to when you try to create a group that's you know, and so. But I think the biggest thing for them is it's that they want to be known for what they're for as opposed to what they're against. And I think a lot of the denominations say, well, we don't adhere to these and this is not what we adhere to. Calvary is more about like, well, here's what we do adhere to. And then, you know, let's, let's move from on from there. But mm-hmm. uh, so over the last 15 years, 14, 15 years, essentially I've been a part of Calvary Chapel movement, you know, Greg Glory yeah. was, yeah. you know, obviously a convert during, they're making a movie about him right now um, about the Jesus movement and all this kind of stuff. And so, Obviously, it's it's intertwined with everything I do, but yeah, I, I think the the interesting thing about the the whole Trump thing is, I, I watched early on in the primaries people just so vehemently against him because mm-hmm. of his morals and his lifestyle, and then he pulled out the hat trick and magic trick, and here here he is, and he's he's the nominee, and and so you know the, with the two party system existing, it's always how I heard it, I guess we'll go for the lesser of two evils. And right. it was a comedian that, that I forget what comedian it was probably somebody I probably shouldn't quote on here anyway. Uh, <laughs> but he, he's like, you know, if you look at the two sides, you know, one side wants, you know, women's rights and to choose and stuff like this. The other side thinks that you're murdering babies. And so he's like, of course they're going to be upset and they're going to fight. And so when when you when you throw that into the mix, uh, and you're you're thinking lesser of two evils, that becomes the primary issue for a lot of people. Yeah, is 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 abortion, and I, I think I know which bit you're talking about, Raymond. It's yeah. it's the Louis C.K. bit from 2017 because we saw that tour in person before all the you know the crazy stuff, harassment yeah. stuff came out, right? The, yeah. and uh, the the bit stuck in my mind because. And I, and I, you know, I feel comfortable doing it here. The bit was basically like, I want you to be able to have an abortion. It's like, if you really need to take a shit, I want you to be able to take a shit. He's like, unless it's a baby 
and then you've just murdered it. So he he was it's a really yeah. brilliant bit that he's like, look, these are the stakes. And so it, right. and he was calling attention. It does like you could imagine people would feel it's just like taking a shit or it's killing a person. And and that's yes. the range of opinions on that issue. And that's why it's so contentious. Yeah. And well, the beautiful thing about comedy is it, it points out the absurdity yeah. in levity. So there is an elephant in the room and there's an absurdity there that we were going to point out. And here, here's the issue with, with the argument that we're not meeting in the middle on. And yeah. so that, I think that's, that was the, the gateway to how we got Trump. And uh, you know, all throughout history, we've seen people do this and it, you, you want to hope that you're not easily manipulated, that you can think clearly and you can, but you, you see like even back thousands of years ago, Constantine, he rose to power by painting a cross saying that I had a vision of a cross that was flaming in the sky because he knew he had a lot of Christians that were being persecuted at the time and he could rally those people. They felt mm. marginalized and you can rally those people and you can say in the name of Jesus, we're going to go and we're going to conquer. And it worked mm-hmm. whether or not it was true. Probably not. Cause he was in brilliant military tactician. tactician. Yeah. Yeah. I would tend to think probably not true, but it worked. You know, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. And so I, I think a, a less brilliant tactician saw the issue of abortion, saw the issue of people feeling pushed down, marginalized. Yeah. And, and amongst those people, a lot of them were Christians and evangelicals. And they felt, okay, this guy's gonna, you know, it's the whole, he's gonna fight for me. I think it was another, another comedian who we're not... Uh, who's on the outs, Dave Chappelle, he said he stood in line and he was like with a bunch of, a bunch of people, he, oh, Donald Trump's going to fight for me. And he goes, you're poor. He's not fighting for you. I'm rich. He's fighting for me. He's fighting <laughs> you for know? me. Right. It's kind of the idea, yeah. but people like, like that idea is you're going to fight for me. And then when you tie in one of their, you know, the, the bedrock belief of their life that they built their life on, which is Christ. And they say, well, he says he follows Christ. And he says, mm-hmm. he uses the rhetoric that says that, you know, um, well, at least he didn't say Psalm, you know, it's like, it's, it's one of those things where people right. just, you know, they, they want to fall into that. It became, instead of voting for the lesser of two evils, it became, oh, we might have a chance to do something here in the name of Jesus. We, we, we could paint some crosses on our, on our shields and we can go out and we can conquer. And I saw a lot of that starting to happen where uh, even people were saying, you know, not Donald Trump is a Christian. And that's when I had to take a step back and be like, well, you, you don't know that for sure, unless you, you've talked to him and, and, and by his lifestyle, it doesn't appear to be the case. But once that became the talking point, it was, well, how could you not vote for this man of God, you know? Yeah. And so to a point where it was like, well, I don't, I don't want to let anybody know that I voted for him, you know, or I'm going to put a sticker on everything I own yeah, and wear his hat everywhere. And mm-hmm. so even in, in, in the camp, my camp, even growing up, you know, being around Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim or Calvary Chapel in general, it, it's like, now you have division within the people who you think you're lumping all together to, to oh, right. they're just a bunch of Trump supporters. I think it's less of that and more of like a, well, the loud people are going to be loud. And others of us just want to, you know, do what Paul said in first Thessalonians to, to work well and, and live a peaceful life, you know? So I, I didn't see that happen 
but I, I do think it was born out of a, of a noble thing, but then it became a sort of a manipulation uh, for sure. So what it, I'm trying to kind of come up with a principle here that we could then find the version of that principle that would apply to the left, right? If we're going to try and find yeah. these worries or concerns. So I got two options here. One is that tribalism overtook, you know, basically Christian identity or authentic faith or, or something like that. Uh, another one would be that uh, Trump spoke to people's, like their inferiority complex, they're sort of feeling culturally embattled and culturally mm -hmm. powerless. So I don't know if, if either of those are right, then maybe we can sort of formulate what's the flip side of that, that you see on the left that has you concerned, and then we can start yeah. discussing that. Yeah, I think so. On the right, there's a, a charismatic, if you can call him that, uh, man that is, yeah, you know, like exactly what you said. He's fighting. He's fighting, and he's going to give us a fighting chance, and we're going to mm -hmm. take back the culture, which we never owned anyway. Yep. It, and that's exciting for Christians. You know, it, it feels like evangelism when you're taking ground mm -hmm. in Jesus' name. Yeah. You know, it's like people never talk about this. I bet the Crusades, when it was going well felt really good for those soldiers and generals and stuff. I bet they I bet they finished those battles where they won feeling like a crazy kind of ecstasy of faith and adrenaline and testosterone maybe if if uh you know these sort of ancient battle myths are to be believed. And yet of course, looking from our perspective, we would say Oh, that's one of the darkest moments in in Christian history. I'm yeah, sure it felt just in, in history. In period, history, I, yeah, one yeah. of the darkest moments in history. And I bet at the moment to them, it felt fucking great. <laughs> and like that's the, we got to hold those both at the same time. It's interesting you bring that up because there's a great example of political power. Because so you got like you have Pope Innocent, which is funny that his name is Pope Innocent, right? Yeah, uh, not so innocent. You got Pope Innocent. So it's different than what it is today because we're in a democratic republic. They were not, they were in a theocracy. So whoever was corrupt in the church was also yeah. corrupt in politics. And so you have this guy who is going to take care of the issue of, it all started with uh, Muslim caravans ransacking Christian caravans that were on their way to do penance, basically go mm -hmm. to on their way to do a, a, a journey of penance. It wasn't like this mass genocide that was happening, but you know, this guy got real, real political over it and said, you know, we gotta, we gotta go snuff this problem out. I, I think at one point uh, there were Christians in Jerusalem that were saying, wow, you know, the Muslims seem benevolent compared to what the Christians are doing to us. Yeah, Cause just tons of Christians died just as well as, and Jews and, mm. and Muslims and things. But the thing that happened there again, he, he went to mercenaries and said, Hey, you guys are good at this and you guys enjoy doing this. Yeah. What if I could promise that your sins would be forgiven <laughs> if you would go yeah. and fight for us? Yeah. So now you have, again, Christians taking on baggage, all of Christianity taking on baggage of what one bad political actor decided to do to gain more power. And we see this happening on the mm -hmm. right. Now, to answer your question about, yeah, you know, so to the left, it's less about, any one person that you could point at. And I feel like it's more about an ideological shift starting with the area of, if I had to look at it over the past 10, 15 years, the area of social justice, I think 
that's that's the springboard because again you have the right looking at abortion it's either taking a dump or killing babies you know mm-hmm. and so that's a, that's a big deal and then you have the left going well it's either taking care of the marginalized or not taking care of the marginalized and throwing them out and and so that's a big issue for people mm-hmm. especially in a in a generation it's no surprise to me in a generation that grew up not I don't know if you, I don't know. How old are you? I'm 38. Okay. So we're the same. I'm 36. I remember going to junior high and being excited about finally going to a history class. Cause I watched boy meets world and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. They went to several classes and he had a history class and his history (laughs) teacher was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I was like, I can't wait to get to history class. I want to go to history class. It was something, it was this weird thing that my, my child brain thought would be cool. And then when I got there, I was like, they call it social studies, which is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Instead of history, it's a, it's social studies. I didn't know what that meant. It, looking back now, there's there's a bit of sociology mixed in with yeah. it. And so we have an entire generation that is learning about social struggles all throughout history. And then now this generation has grown up to constantly be aware or looking on the lookout for social injustices and, yeah. and some, something that I don't think any other generation before us has really had the opportunity to be forewarned about as much as, as the millennial generation and, and the, and Gen the, Z. the ones yeah. after them. And a lot of that has to do with, um, and I think it's good. I think it's good that we, we are. Yeah. There's a quote from Jurassic Park two, which I got myself in trouble one time. I actually told people I like Jurassic Park 2 better than Jurassic Park 1. You like the Lost and World better than Jurassic Park? No, I'm not saying I'm not saying that. <laughs> yeah, good. Don't make anyway, that mistake again. That'll be the only thing anybody ever hears. Forget Louis C.K. He doesn't like Jurassic Park 1. Anyway, so there's a there's a quote in it, and I think it applies. Dr. Ian Malcolm is trying to be or is is being convinced to go back to the Dino Infested Island, right? And uh so uh, John Hammond tells him, oh, don't worry. I'm not making the same mistake again. And then Ian Malcolm says, no, but you're making all new ones. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like, so what's happened with our generation is to avoid making the same mistake again, we're starting to make new ones. And so that's kind of where I see it springing up from. And uh, the melding of sociology and and theology to create an urgency that is founded in the scriptures, but is not foundational uh, to the faith. And so I think that maybe that is what I see. And it, it starts to, it starts to shift people away from, I want to be careful here. I don't want to say true gospel. I don't, because, mm-hmm. but the main vein of the gospel and starts to add platitudes starts to add uh, modifiers to the word justice starts to end that I don't think are theologically aligned with what, what the right believes, uh, you know, yeah. what conservative Christianity believes. And so, so you got progressive and conservative, and those are the two issues I think that we're, we're differing on maybe. So then let me, let me just make sure I understand this right. So you're saying that a more like social justice, the, the concept, the focus on it, that is in scripture. You're, you're not denying that that, uh, in fact, many, many of the 
you know, it, it may be even that that movement sort of draws its main inspiration from the biblical text. I mean, certainly the 1960s civil rights movement, a lot of that was very biblically drawn. Yeah. But what you're, you're saying is that- image of God. Yeah. But what you're yeah. saying is that the main vein of the gospel, of sort of what Christianity is about, is not identical to that social justice work. And what you're sensing is a replacement of sort of the more elemental- gospel with this one aspect of the gospel or of the Christian life in pursuing, you know, equitable states on this earth, uh, fighting against unjust actions and unnecessary suffering uh, through yeah. a justice lens. Is, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The shorter, more eloquent way to put it. Yeah. That's fine. Hey, it's my job. Okay. So then if that's the difference then I, I feel like if we if we unpack that more, we're going to find some agreement and then definitely some disagreement. Let me let me try just like a thirty thousand foot response, sort of from where I'm coming from. Hmm. The main vein of the gospel. One way of thinking about this is that I think that the Bible presents different versions of what you are calling the gospel. And one of the versions of the gospel say in like the book of Matthew, I'm quite open to the idea, which I, I heard elsewhere, that if you just read Matthew and take it seriously, Jesus is basically saying, uh, care for the poor or go to hell. <laughs> and so if I were to ex excerpt Matthew out from the other gospels, which have different sort of takes on all of that, since I don't believe in a univocal Bible, I don't believe that the Bible is internally coherent on everything that the authors claim, uh, then then I would say, okay, one of the ways that the, go that the gospel, capital T, capital G, one of the versions of the gospel that's presented in the text is explicitly social justice with really no adornment and no attachment. Like, that's it. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, the goats and the sheep, right? When they ask him, Jesus, why are we the goats or why are we the sheep? Essentially, his answer is when I was naked and you clothed me, I was he He never says anything else. He doesn't say also you accepted the free gift of salvation. Also, you had your sins cleaned by the blood of the lamb. Also, you, he doesn't say anything like that in that. Now, if you think that 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 the Bible is univocal, well, then you'll say, okay, but we have to combine that with the other parts, you know, and I get that that's a methodological difference. But I would just say in that view, the, the gospel writer of Matthew believed or shaped, shaped the life and teachings of Jesus with the historical memories of the people, whatever, into saying it is simply uh, that, that, that that's what you do. You care for the poor and that is salvation. And if you don't, then you go to hell. So that's kind of my first thought. And that, that brings in a little bit of the inerrancy stuff and, and all of that sort of by proxy. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's very interesting. So what you're saying is the sheeps and the goats, Jesus is talking about the least of these, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've also yeah. done, done to me. Mm -hmm. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. It, yeah. And so Never you're, knew you. you're yeah. saying because they didn't do this, now they have no salvation. And so that's, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, and not just that, but then the people who say, well, why are we in, we didn't, we never saw you naked. 
you know, like, why do, why are we in? He says, because you did. So he, he gives both. It's not merely a, well, you know, he, he sort of explains it to both the sheeps and the goats as that being, that's the issue. That is the thing on which your salvation or lack of salvation in that parable turns is explicitly caring for the poor. Yeah. And that's just the Matthew view. Yeah. That it, well, so that's the thing. Yeah. Scripture, you're saying we could take that and then and extrapolate what the gospel and what salvation is from that. Well, I guess I'm, I'm not believe. I think one thing we differ on is that there is a unified understanding of the gospel within the Bible. So yes. if I thought that there was one, then I would, I would have to go, okay, well then I need to put that side by side with these other ones and find a kind of amalgam or find an account that takes all of them into consideration. I will say this though. Even if I did believe that I could do that, that that was not a, a wasted effort, I would not land because of where that is in the Sermon on the Mount, which I which I basically deem to be sort of the most central teaching of Jesus. It's like his traveling stump speech to bring it back to politics. Right. This is his traveling preaching. This is his main his main thing. I would not be comfortable with a unified a gospel account that did not include this as a necessary part because I would be too worried about excluding the sheep and the goats and the Sermon on the Mount from my sort of the text interprets itself, you know, unified thing. So I would I would probably still, even if I did believe in a univocal Bible, I would have social justice as a part of the salvation, you know, equation or whatever. Hmm. But but not the only or main part if I were unifying all of the text. Gotcha. So you're mentioning this parable of the sheep and the goats. So that it wasn't a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Really? Uh, the Sermon on the Mount's in five and six and seven. It's a part of his list of parables. Hmm. Uh, so you got the parable that? of the talents. Oh, you're right. It's Matthew 25. Yeah. yeah. So, sorry. So if I was oh, that's not tracking, that's, that's, yes. uh, so anyway, so, Many of Jesus's teaching styles, obviously he had poetry, he had parables, he even had puns, which uh, we could talk about that if you want. I, I like Jesus's puns. You yeah. know, you swallow a camel, but you strain out a gnat. That's a pun, which I think is funny. He had pictures, uh, you know, stories. He had stark comparisons, like the log mm -hmm. in your eye and the speck in, in your in your neighbor's eye. Yeah. Uh, he had, you know, all these methods of teaching the parables especially, you know, convey different things. Like, you know, you have, we have the parable in, in Luke of, uh, you know, the Good Samaritan and, you know, people interpret that in, in different ways, but again, they're, they're teachings uh, and, and most of them come back to the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? And this is what the kingdom looks like. And so if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, he opens with the Beatitudes, which is here are characteristics of people who are living kingdom lives. And then he goes into, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which that's a, uh, an important one. Uh, blessed are the merciful, the pure of heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. And it's interesting, there's only two, and this is a long way around the barn, but hopefully I get there. There's only two in the, in the Beatitudes that speak of something that you should already own and be displaying as a Christian. And the first one is poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is what he says. Then he has a long list that says they shall be comforted. There's will be all these things at the end. So you hit bookends. So poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so he opens the sermon on the Mount by saying, essentially poor in spirit means I'm realizing my need for God. I cannot attain salvation on my own. I've realized my spirit is weak. I need a savior. And then blessed are the persecute who are persecuted for righteousness sake, assuming you are a kingdom living person. You are uh, a Christian, you know, you you're going to be persecuted, uh, not because of the silly songs you sing, not because of, you know, the causes that you, or the people you follow, whatever it's because of righteousness and that righteousness uh, is unattainable apart from the atonement of, of, of Jesus on the cross paid by blood and then rising again on the third day in order to prove that he is the Lord. Right. So you're, so what you're saying is that when Jesus is delivering his sermon on the Mount before he is crucified, that in his mind, when he says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, you Jews talking, you know, sitting in front of me in 30 AD. When I say righteous, what I really mean is that a year from now or further or a thousand years from now, those of you who have been washed by my blood through my sacrificial atonement, when you're persecuted for having accepted Christ, accepted me as your personal Lord and Savior, then that's who I'm talking about. And I recognize that interpretation, but I, I would not hold that. I don't I don't think we can put all of that into Jesus's mind as he's saying that long before he is ever executed, even though I think he did know that he was going to be executed. I don't, we don't, we probably don't have time. We don't have time to get into an entire atonement theory conversation. I recognize that logic of penal substitutionary atonement and that, and that understanding of the text, but for a myriad of, of other reasons, I, I find it quite lacking and I definitely don't, I would not, I would not personally feel comfortable putting that understanding into Jesus's mind at the moment that he's preaching that I would be far more comfortable. Occam's razor would say he's talking to a group of Jews who are under Roman occupation and apocalypticism is in the air. Messianic movements are in the air. Yeah. And that is probably yes. more likely what he is thinking about. And he also has a very, very strong moral ethic really of piety, right? So he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes all these things from the Old Testament and he said, you've heard it said, I say to you. And in every single yeah. case, he makes it more stringent. So I think yeah, he, elevates the law. he elevates the law. So I think to say that, but there, when he says persecuted for righteousness sake, that he's not talking about the law, a kind of a Luther reading, he's actually talking about uh, completely separate from the law, being saved by grace in Pauline language. I, I don't, that does not make sense to me. Now I'm not a new Testament scholar, but I don't, that doesn't resonate with me as a plausible reading or, you know, certainly not the primary reading of a guy who's in the act of talking about law righteousness, literally, and elevating the Torah and making it even harder saying, this is what I'm at. This is what I'm asking of you. Serious piety, essentially. So 
I would think that it's more that than it's about being washed in the blood. Interesting. So you mentioned Luther. I think he, he said, uh, you're saved by faith alone, but a faith that is saved is never alone. And so it's, it's the whole James chapter one, which actually goes yeah, in faith and, and, and works. The, yeah. the sermon on the mouth that it's kind of a touchstone, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with a touchstone is basically a, a method of testing purity of, of precious metals. Mm. And so you would touch these metals to the stone and it would tell you how pure. And so then James kind of goes through different scenarios and things that how we treat the poor in our worship services, you know, yeah. all, all these, you know, how you pray in wisdom yeah. and all these things like that. And so then there's, there's conflict that rises between Paul and, and James. And then this, what we're talking about here in Matthew, is it grace alone that saves or is, is there, uh, is there more for, for us to do? Um, and I think that's where, where Luther hits it on the head um, pretty, pretty beautiful, beautifully, but right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's right after talking about the Beatitudes and then talking about salt and light, he talks about fulfilling the law, you know, not that he came to destroy it, but he came to fulfill it, which is a, is a big deal in Messianic prophecy. But also you got to realize too, Mark was probably written earliest, which was Peter's gospel. Matthew using Mark now writes it from, okay, now we're going to look at this from a Messianic view. We're going to look at this fulfilling Jewish uh, prophecy. And so the intention of the writer writing these things in the aftermath and then including what he includes uh, is important too, because Jesus had died. Jesus had risen from the dead in, in the moment that it, it was written and then using it together with uh, John and Luke, which Luke writes kind of from the outsider Gentile perspective, instead of using it as a source of, well, this is good teaching. This is this truth. Good teaching this is this truth. And I think Paul says, you know, if Christ hasn't been risen from the dead, then our preaching is useless and we're, we're it's all in vain, you know? Mm -hmm. And so to, to take one parable and then say, well, this is the gospel instead of taking the entire teaching in life, death and resurrection. And then what Jesus taught about himself, you know, uh, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And then you look back at Matthew uh, 517, when he says, and I've fulfilled it, I've fulfilled the law. You know, I I'm elevating these things because, you know, you've distorted it to be a rule book instead of a heart change, you know? Yeah. So let me, let me see if I'm, I will try and be, what I'm mm -hmm. hearing you say is, look, Dan, there is a way that all of this scripture holds together and tells one univocal agreeing story about the gospel. And here's the, here's the possibly uncharitable part. It's, it's the version that Protestants, basically Baptists with a little bit of color from other Protestant traditions, how they say it goes. And I think my response to that is sure. Like I could, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm a little rusty, but if I could channel my 18 year old self, I could have given the explanation that you just gave, not with nearly the level of sort of scholarly detail that you gave. You've obviously spent a lot of time learning and reading about this stuff and, and 
honestly, you have a much more nuanced version of it than a lot of people who taught me when I was growing up had. And I, and I respect that and I see it, but that's a problem. uh, Yeah. But ultimately it is just like a sort of Baptist, you know, semi Calvinist. And I'm not trying to pin you down in one spot or other, but you know, Calvinist adjacent. I'm certainly not a Calvinist, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, so there's, and, and I wasn't raised Calvinist either. Yeah. So I, maybe I recognize it even more because of that, but it, yeah. it's kind of like a Baptist yeah. style, evangelical Protestant understanding of how it all fits together to which like, I would say, yeah, I recognize that picture. I have many problems with it. And there are, I don't know, maybe a hundred episodes of this show documenting various problems with that picture. Zooming all the way out, there would be like, well, there are really compelling alternate visions of that from Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anabaptist, and other Protestant traditions. There are also really compelling problems presented from other faith traditions or, you know, various sort of critical schools of thought, all of which I find quite interesting and have to have to meddle with. And then there are some sort of like, in my mind, kind of knock down theological, philosophical arguments against certain aspects of it, like eternal conscious torment, you know, like penal substitutionary atonement as the sort of best explanation for how God sees people and the role of Jesus and all of that kind of thing, which we don't have time to get into all of those things here. But we could spend the rest of our time debating those things, but I'd rather... And, and I'll give you a chance to say anything you want to, but I'd rather get into, so how does this then manifest itself for you in more liberal or progressive Christianity? And I wonder if we might, if we get a bit more granular, we might have some interesting conversation. Yeah. So th- this is an extreme example, so don't get me wrong. So taking, you know, Matthew 25 and then saying, here's the gospel, because Jesus said in this one instant, which was also a parable. Yeah situated in the middle of many other parables that, you know, if you start adding some of those other parables to it, you're like, oh, but then you also have to do this. And then you also have to do this as opposed to him just explaining what, what the kingdom should look like might be similar to there's, there's verses in the Psalms that are like, what the heck is this? This is, what is this even saying? Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's a Psalm, Psalm uh, 137, nine says, happy is the man who bashes his babies against rocks. Yeah. Um, you're like, what the heck does that mean? That's stinking weird. So could I build a, a theology on that though, uh, apart from cohesively, you know, and comprehensively reading the word and studying and, and weighing against other accounts. I mean, the whole purpose of the gospel, dude, these are eyewitness accounts passed down to disciples who decided to record them. And so, you know, the differences between them is actually valuable to us. Mm -hmm. The discrepancies between them are actually valuable to us. The fact that uh, certain things in them are hard to reconcile with are valuable to us because in searching for truth, you don't want a neatly tied up with a bow representation. And so I agree with you on that. I think what we disagree about is that there is ultimately a way to put the puzzle pieces together. That's where, and I just think that like, that's a really good, that's a metaphor I took from Christian Smith and his book, Bible made impossible. Mm -hmm. And, and his kind of thing is like, look, either 
the pieces fit together into a cohesive puzzle and it's taken 2000 years and, you know, thousands of denominations and, and different. And one of those is right and puts all the pieces together in the right way. And, you know, we don't know which one is right, but we can do our best while we're alive to sort of get as close as possible or yeah. the pieces don't fit together. That, and that's why there are thousands of denominations, because ultimately they don't fit. And what each person right. or denomination or interpretive stream has to do to make it look like they fit is fudge the numbers a bit here, focus more on this, focus less on that, interpret this one in light of this one rather than that one in light of that one. And that ultimately it just doesn't match up, it, the text itself. And I, I find that extremely persuasive. And so it's not like I don't reject the whole premise that you're saying of like, in fact, I, I really agree with you about the multiplicity of voices. I think there's like the way that Dale Martin said it, uh, one of the earlier episodes of this podcast called the four Jesuses or something like that was there is a Jesus. There is a gospel lens for different moments in our lives. There's a time when the Jesus of Mark shrouded in mystery, never explaining his parables, appearing to, he seems yeah. really forsaken by God. And there's like, it's a big mm -hmm. kind of cliffhanger at the end. Like he's like, there's a time yeah. in our life when that is the Jesus that resonates with it. So I I'm with you on all that where I don't, yeah. where I think our view breaks down is that for you, if I understand, ultimately the pieces do fit together and the, and the puzzle that we get the final picture has social justice as one part, but not the not the central part. And I think my response to that is they don't fit together. So what we have are sort of like uh, streams of interpretation, streams of of biblical values, of Christ-like values, of God's will that actually are in tension with each other and never resolved. One of those is social justice. But the the thing that I have where I'm a bit more I think open to social justice as being closer to the center, though I don't I don't know if I put anything in the center except maybe God's selfless love or something like that. That's maybe the center for me. But the reason that I'm more okay with it having more of a prominent place since is that it's just in the text basically more than any other of these things, both Old and New Testament. There's just so much of it. God seems to really care about the affairs of this world. And so I'm less worried by people sort of doubling down on that because I don't, I'm not comparing it to a completed puzzle picture where it's sort of on the side. It's in there. It's definitely in the picture, but it's not in the middle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you that God cares deeply about each individual person on the earth and what they're going through and, and how they, whether or not, they'll be delivered from that is it, it's a hard thing. Cause like we, and here's something I see in Calvary chapels a lot is uh, we're in the end times. Right. And they're like, love that. Right. That's a big Calvary uh, chapel. We're in thing, the end yeah. times. And when, when Jesus said this generation will not pass away, that's us. It's like, well, no, he was talking a long time ago to another generation that by the way, perished. Yeah. In fact, uh, the, the book of first Peter is written smack dab in the middle of uh, the persecution of Rome against Jews and Christians and uses a lot of language of, you know, going through the fire, which literally is happening to Christians. Yeah. They're being burned at dinner parties, thrown to over their faith. 
And then, you know, Christians are being martyred and yet Paul's telling them, just live a quiet, peaceful life, work hard with your hands, don't rise up. So there's a lot going on there. And so to, to say that, well, we're the ones that are being persecuted. We're the ones that are blessed because we're being persecuted. The issues of our day are the issues of, you know, we're, we're basically superimposing everything that Jesus said. It, it, we're isogeting. We're, we're leading into the text to say, yeah. this is talking about us. This is talking about this. This is talking about this. Yeah. Uh, I think in Acts, in Acts chapter six, I think is one of the, one of the most popular arguments, I guess, for a social justice church setting where the Greek speaking widows are not getting the portion that they should. Uh, they're being neglected because, you know, obviously the, the greatest divide is Jew and Gentile at the time. And Christ is now, you know, broken down the barrier wall, you know, you know, he's, he's brought close those who are far away. And so there shouldn't be this divide, you know? And so uh, the apostles are like, well, we're, we're busy teaching. We need to be about these other affairs. And so let's, let's, put together seven men of good reputation to, to handle this thing, not necessarily making deacons or leaders in the church, but just saying, okay, it looks like the, the Greek speaking people are being uh, excluded. So let's get a bunch of the people who are raising the issue with us. Let's put them in a, in a position of leadership to take care of this issue. And then that's done. So that looks a little bit like social justice, doesn't it? You know, and representation where there was no representation before. So, you know, like I said, I don't, I'm not going to refute that social justice is some kind of, or I'm not going to say that social justice is some kind of evil that is yeah. permeated oh, I, and for sure. ruined. Yeah. But I think it's kind of like the cart and horse, you know, if we're looking at James and he's saying faith without works is dead. And so you need to care for the widows. You need to care for the poor. You need to be caring for the marginalized in your society and, and, and recognizing those things, especially on an individual basis. Uh, your heart should break for these things. And and so you should individually, hey, I'm going to do what I can, these things. But is that a prerequisite of saying I'm saved? Is that a prerequisite? Is, is that in and of itself the method in which we are saved? Or is it a result because we are saved is, is the difference for me. You can always join the Patreon campaign for this podcast at $5 a month and get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only and has become a really vibrant community. In fact, recently I've noticed a trend and I posted about this in the group just this morning uh, that people are re-engaging the Bible. They're re-engaging church, Christian books, Christian resources, uh, often with some trepidation. And they are coming to the group to discuss it, to talk about it with like-minded individuals. And I wrote that that makes my heart really glad. I think partly because I am figuring out what I want my family's involvement to be in official church kind of stuff and, and kind of fighting against some ambivalence there or playing with that ambivalence and, and seeing what it leads to. You know, Soren is two years old now. And I want him to have a Sunday school experience. I find myself wanting that, but I have a lot of questions about it. Uh, and the group is a perfect place for stuff like that. Um, there are hundreds of people in there and many of them are surely in a similar spot as you are in right now. And people are active. They respond, uh, they engage with each other in a really 
kind way. I'm really, um, I'm often quite blown away at that group. Uh, the other thing that patrons get access to is exclusive episodes. And the most recent patron exclusive uh, is a conversation where Trip Fuller of Homebrewed Christianity interviewed me about my spiritual abuse research for the Convergence uh, Summit. Uh, Courageous Faith is the name of the summit. And that particular conference was focusing on some questions around the future of spirituality and religion. And so we get into some of that and what the spiritual abuse research might say about sort of the future frontiers of spirituality in a Western context. So patreon.com slash Dan Koch to sign up. The link is in the show notes. Uh, you also have access to all the previous patron exclusive episodes going back, I think, uh, almost you know, six years now uh, worth of that content. So, you know, think about it, but no pressure. And now back to my conversation with Raymond. So that that's that's its own kind of interesting question also kind of from a therapeutic psychological perspective of, you know, sort of like, what is the saved carries a lot of connotations. And I, I'm sure that we disagree on like how we would define salvation or how much, anyway, how much confidence I have in how I, even whatever I would say, I don't, I don't believe it as strongly as you believe whatever you believe about salvation, put it that way, because I, I okay. am, I have a harder time feeling confident about my soteriology but that's a cool, it's a cool question of like, does our good works, does our loving of our neighbor, let's bring it back to Sermon on the Mount language, does our loving yeah. of our neighbor better, is that a result of our salvation, of God's work in our life, or is it the way that we get God to work in our lives? Another question would be like, how, like, what is the mechanism by which God begins to work in our lives. And I, I would guess that we would have a difference of opinion here that you would put the conversion point, whatever that is, the, the, the point at which, not that we necessarily know the moment, but the moment at which, or the time in which God is uniquely through the Holy spirit indwelling a life and beginning to affect change. And then a person taking part in social justice initiatives because their heart breaks for the suffering of the world, that would then rightly be understood as an outcropping of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives more generally. Am I right that thus far? Yes, could be, yes. Okay. Yeah. And I think for me, I have a lot lower view of that sort of salvation moment or having the Holy Spirit versus not having the Holy Spirit before or after kind of a thing. And so in my mind, it's sort of like God is at work any time that any individual is sort of open to God's love, open to and, and participating in that love in the world. That there's no, there's no state beforehand where they sort of don't have God's help and they don't have access to God. And then later they do have access to God. There's no before after in, in my understanding of, of how God relates to God's creatures. So that might be another, that might be another helpful distinction for why we are, maybe you're seeing it more as it's a result of salvation and, and growing in holiness. Really, it's a result of discipleship, you could say, 
or my view, which is more like justice work should be baked into the cake at all points. There is no really pre-discipleship, post-discipleship. There's just closer or further to Christ-likeness in various aspects at various points in one's life. But there's not like a cliff. There's no there's no big marker delineator. Although I will just say, to be clear, I do believe that people have conversion experiences. Like there are people who have those and they can set a real delineator in their life of before after. I'm not saying that that's bullshit. I'm just saying I don't, I don't ascribe a spiritual phase change to that moment the way God sees them or the way God interacts or God's attitude toward them, so that sort of a thing. Uh, it, they're, they're very real changes. I have many friends who've had these experiences. As someone raised in the church who's sort of always taken it seriously, I haven't had one, but many of my friends have. Yeah. I mean, as Eugene Peterson said that uh, repentance is a long obedience in, in the same direction, right. you know. So you're talking, you're speaking of repentance is uh, I've turned from from evil. I've turned from the wrong thing and I'm headed toward the right thing, which is Christ. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, that, you know, like social justice could be an outflow of the work of the spirit. I, I do want to clarify that, you know, just as I think it was Thomas Aquinas that one of his big things was the division of ethics in order to explain God, because basically he said there are natural virtues that exist apart from God. So mm-hmm. like temperance, fortitude, wisdom, and justice. And justice is his final one there. Um, there is temperance. There is appreciation for and, and self-sacrifice. We've seen self-sacrificing people that aren't Christians, mm-hmm. you know, that, that are atheists. That exists outside of God. There's fortitude. We've seen acts of bra- bravery and, and discipline, obviously, outside of God. We've seen wisdom. We've seen people seeking after truth. You don't have to be a Christian to be smart, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, and some might argue the other way. If you're a Christian, you're not smart. And then justice is one of those natural vir- virtues that Thomas Aquinas asserts. It's, it's basically that there is a desire for justice apart from God, apart from Christ. And so those things can exist outside of Christ. I guess the difference, like what you said was uh, you, you never had a conversion moment where I have decided to follow Jesus. Yeah. You know, I, I, I came forward in an altar call or whatever, whatever it looks like. I mean, I did have that, but it was, it was as my brain was getting just enough, you know, language capacity to understand that this is what you do in my community and this is a good thing, and I, I want to be a part of it. You know, it's not like nothing, but my agency was very small at age six sure. at Vacation Bible School yeah. when I first remember doing it. I might have done it before, and I don't remember. You know, it's just like, whereas I have friends whose lives completely turned around, right? They really turned direction like Paul on the road to Damascus. And I think that both sure. are r- very real human spiritual experiences, right, that we have. Yeah. And so, I mean, have you been baptized? I'm assuming you probably were baptized at one point. I was baptized. Yeah, I was baptized as an infant. Both my grand, both my parents grew up Lutheran. And so they, so my, my two, my two grandparents, my two grandfathers rather, who were both ordained Lutheran ministers baptized me as a child. And so we had a adult baptism option with like the confirmation class in junior high at my church mm-hmm. and I decided I didn't need to do it again, that the first one counted. And at that point, one of my grandparents 
one of my grandpas who I, the one I'd been closer to had passed away. And I was like, I think I'll stick with my two grandpas. And, you know, I plan to get my son. We, there's a, a lot of going on here with COVID and, and a newborn and also us not having a home church right now. I, I plan to get him baptized as a kid. And then also if he wants to do it as an adult or a teenager or whatever, that's, I have no problem. I, I personally think that, I don't think there's any, I know that people are passionate about it. I, I can't find passion for either position. I think it's kind of in the weeds for me. Interesting. So I'll just throw out Romans 10. You know, if you openly declare Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Mm-hmm. Is that something we agree on? Uh, no, I have no idea what saved means. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. No, I don't know if there is any conscious experience after this life. I believe that it is very Christian. It is at the center of really Judeo-Christianity to hope for that, that that is what comes next on God's holy mountain, that there's a just world that we get to take part in after this thoroughly unjust world. I sincerely hope so. And I live my life in the Christian tradition as if there is one of those coming. Within that world, I am definitely a universalist. I, I don't, I definitely don't believe in hell. I can't make any sense of hell. I think that the existence of an eternal conscious hell would be such a disruption of language about God that the Bible uses so as to render the entire, the entire Bible meaningless in talking about God. Another thing we probably don't have time to get into. <laughs> so no, we, we're not, I, I really wish we did. But yeah. <laughs> I can okay. point you to an episode if you're, if you're bored, but good. Oh, good. Yeah, good yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not all on my shoulders. That's great. <laughs> someone else has already lost the argument with you. No, no, that was someone I agreed with. Yeah. No, I, uh, okay. I'm, I don't know that I have debated. I don't know that I've debated it. I'm sure it's come up. I don't do actually, I, I do far more just like interviewing people who are expert about something that I'm not an expert about. That's mostly what this podcast is. These, these worries about progressive Christianity episodes are, are like a rare treat for me to do more of a, just one-on-one discussion with, with a peer, you know? Um, But mostly I'm, I'm sort of in the lower chair and someone else is in the upper chair who knows, who knows more than I do about whatever it is they're they've, they've researched. Yeah. So I guess the, the word saved, I guess if I boil it down, saved from the power of sin, and eternal separation from God, which is, mm-hmm. that's it, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think anybody is ever eternally. I, I literally think there's not a single thing, person, entity, molecule that God has created that is ever eternally separated from God. And in fact, I can't even make sense of such an idea. I don't know how that would be possible to be eternally separated from so, God. Because there's no universe. Then there's a universe because God created it. How could that be sep- I don't. I don't understand how anything could even... Like separation from God would mean to f- cease to exist in my, in my metaphysics. Interesting. Yeah. So if that's hell, okay. Maybe that, like I'm, I'm open to annihilationism. Yeah. I still think that there's a lot of psychological, uh, it's very convenient who ends up being annihilated and who ends up being saved uh, in terms of, but I'm theoretically open to it in a way that I'm not open to conscious hell, nor can I make sense of conscious hell. Okay. So, I mean, I guess we'll go for the first part, you know, the power of sin. Yeah. Separation. Well, uh, the question, uh, where were you, well, where were you going with that? And we can, maybe we can get there. I'm sorry. I kind of derailed us. 
No, no, that's okay. It actually popped into my head just now. In Matthew 25, it, it, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Mm-hmm. Where are they departing to? I guess would be the question. Yeah, I if, mean, because I mean, you're hanging your hat on the fact that, you know, the gospel is what you do, you know, with these marginalized, with the people to the least of these. Right. And then he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I, I would be curious to know if that is the gospel that. Is that, and that's what's important. Where would they be departing to? Well, just I want to be really clear. I'm not. I'm not sure I was sufficiently clear on this earlier. I. It is not my personal view that Matthew 25 is the delineation of who's saved and who's not saved. I just mean I to you. say that it is one of the competing visions of what salvation is gotcha. within the text. And and so gotcha. if I'm going to lay them all out, like it's in the conversation along with all the other ones. But I don't personally hold a, I don't believe that anybody goes to hell. So I, I, can't, I couldn't right. hold that view. I mean, I think that Jesus is, he's thinking about stuff the way that Second Temple Jews thought about stuff. So there's some Abraham's bosom. There's some Sheol. There's some, he uses Gehenna, the specific area outside Jerusalem as a, as an image or a metaphor from this. Yeah. The but the I trash don't. Trash burning. Yeah. The trash burning There's, and stuff. And, and I have a much lower view of scripture than you do. That's become very clear. So I don't, it's not like I take any one of these particular things and I, I have to know what it means because it has to fit into a puzzle of truth. And now, now I'm, I'm feeling like I'm being a little bit, I don't mean to sound dismissive. I hope you don't hear it that way. Well, I, and I don't, I hope I'm not, I'm not intending to be like, Hey, I know stuff. Oh no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't feel that way at all. Um, Cause I don't, yeah. No, I, I, I play guitar just like you. <laughs> That's right. There's only, there's a finite amount of, of, of wisdom you can have and still be a guitar player. I would agree. Yeah. And I, I keep looking at your guitars. You get a lot of really cool guitars back there. So that's cool. They're yeah. They're not very expensive though. Just so don't get too jealous. They, they look cool. I can't tell what they are. They're well, they they're cool. well arranged aesthetically, but yeah, it's got aesthetic. I, yeah. I do think like, this is something I wanted to bring up that I think this is kind of wrapping around to, which is, one reason that I could think that someone would hold a view closer to yours around social justice and that being kind of missing the mark would be if the if the stakes are eternal and if the eternal stakes are fundamentally about salvation or damnation. And I, I, I think that is logically very consistent. And mm-hmm. if that's what you think is going on, then you've got then you have two options. And I've seen more theologically conservative Christians take either approach. One option is what I would consider maybe the classic white evangelical approach, which is since what really matters is inviting people into God's salvation rather than them being eternally separated from God, then we should focus our efforts explicitly on that. Like that's what we should be doing primarily and everything else is secondary. The other approach I've I've seen taken even by more conservative Christians is, yes, that is the primary thing, but how do we show the world that this is the thing worth doing? Well, we can only do that by focusing on tangible things that affect people in this life, because most people are not are not moved by sort of abstract conceptual arguments of their theoretical guilt before God without an atoning sacrifice that like, put it this way, I think you and I would both agree. It's no surprise that most of the people who take approach one 
are white males who are kind of abstract, conceptual, the type of people who end up as teaching pastors, uh, people, frankly, like me, who love theory and, uh, you know, argumentation. And most people, I think, are not like that. And they are moved more by emotion, experience, interpersonal relationship, empathy, narrative, right? And so I could see a world where you and I agreed about social justice for different reasons, that for you, it was really about the eternal stakes. But the only way to convince people to show them in this life that we have the answer is to show up for them in this life and to show God's love tangibly here and now. And that might include sort of a gospel presentation or something, but it would be sort of the down payment is, hey, we're here in this impoverished area with these foster children, with, you know, with whatever to show what God's love is like on this earth so that you know what we're talking about after this earth. Right. So that would be, would still be a, that would be a place where we could converge, even though I don't share the eternal stakes motivation. What do you think about that? Yeah. I will push back just a, just a little Please. bit on the, I, I, I don't like, so th- this is where this kind of leads a little bit is the, uh, the separation of people into groups. Sure. Like, because I'm white and, and we both have beards and uh, are sitting and talking together yeah. that those are the type of people that like the logical approach and, 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 and learned things because I have, I have tons of friends who are different races and different ethnicities and different things. Yeah that love those things too. So I don't want to, I don't want to just say that this is what it is, you know? I agree. Yeah. Agreed. It's not, I'm being a little bit silly. I know I am a white male with yeah, a beard I, and I am definitely the kind of person I'm talking about. You know, I yeah. am. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's, that's worries me a bit. You just, yeah. the, the, the ramification, the, the side effects of the social justice, because, you know, in order to recognize disparate outcomes in groups you have to actually put people into groups and you know galatians says there's no slave free male female we're all one in christ Mm -hmm. well let let me let me ask you this before we move on from that point let me let me ask you this like if you do you think that if there were a lot more women theologians over the 2000 2000 years of christian thought that there would be less of an emphasis on cold rationality than there was the fact that it was mostly men. And these are not all white men. Augustine was African, right? So, uh, you know, a lot of the early church fathers are basically Arab, what we would call now, and then certainly Eastern European and then Western European, right? So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but a a, a male-female sort of differential, I would think that if there had been a more even split in gender, that, yeah, we would have more of an emphasis on, you know, sort of, the, the parenting of God, the, you know, uh, even just from the, the fact that women experience pregnancy and childbirth, right? Because uh-huh. because God is described as a mother hen in the Bible. I mean, it's not like it's not in the text. It doesn't get emphasized very much by males who have never been mother hens before, right? So I, I don't even mean, sure. I don't mean to make a kind of reductive progressive argument. I just mean to say that it's more really a personality argument is what I'm saying that if a bunch of people who end up writing the seminal works are in a personality sense drawn to the cold, abstract, logical type of thing, then that's what you're going to end up with more of. Yeah. And that's not even really a judgment. It's just like a, well, that might end up being kind of impoverished on the whole. Yeah. And I enjoy deduction, reason, all that kind of stuff, but I don't read the Bible 
to learn how to reason, yeah. you know, and be deductive of, I learned the Bible to learn how, what God requires of me and how to love him more because the chief, you know, I think it's the Westminster small, smaller or shorter catechism, whatever it's called says, you know, the chief end of man is to, is to love God and, and to glorify him and then enjoy him forever. Mm-hmm. And so to glorify him, I mean, we are to represent and replicate the glory of the image of God and whether that's through discipling and being more like him, you know, like you said, you know, being, being further away from the bad stuff and closer to what Christ is and what he, he's called you to do, you're representing God. I guess the difference is uh, apart from Christ, uh, that is not possible for me to do. The, the idea of justification as a starting point, saved through faith and, and I'm justified. Uh, and then now I'm being sanctified. And one day, I know you don't, you don't adhere to this, but one day we'll be glorified. I mean, I really hope so. I do. I do really hope that we will be glorified. Yeah. And I do everything up till that. I'm, yeah, sanctification. I'm all about it. I mean, I, I'm in the kind of evangelical world. I'm like a Dallas Willard guy. I'm within this world. I'm all about discipleship, practical, you know, habits, becoming like Jesus, the way that Jesus's disciples became like him. And, and so sanctification is actually, to me, huge and is often really discounted. I actually think that the eternal stakes of the soul saving are in tension with the value of discipleship, which is, like Eugene Peterson said, long, slow obedience in the same direction, which doesn't just mean a long, slow obedience to handing out four spiritual laws tracks over and over and over again for your whole life. Discipleship gets much deeper and more interesting than that. And you can't, you're, it's not the same thing as evangelism, you know? And so that, that's sort of how I would see the, the tension between those two. Yeah. We confuse proselytization with evangelism. Mm, Yeah. I I think too often we were like, get out there on the streets and start telling people that they're going to hell. Mm -hmm. That's proselytization. We're trying to get people, you know, to, to make an action. Yeah. Evangelism, evangelism is a lot a lot more. So then what's the role of engaging? So let's say I find out, I realize that in my state, there are big private prisons that are earning all kinds of tax revenue where, you know, 75% of the people locked up are black men for nonviolent drug crimes. I mean, I'm making up these statistics, but you know, whatever the, close. Yeah. whatever the version is, right. Yeah. I find that out. And I think, wow, that is very anti-God, anti-kingdom of heaven. That is not how it's supposed to be. That's not heaven on earth, right? And the injustice is sort of baked in at multiple levels. There's tax stuff. There's political you know, contributions maybe from those private prison firms. It's a big business. There's near slave labor, wage, you know, low wage labor from the incarcerated people. All this stuff going on. Okay, so I see that. Like- situate for me, obviously I know you, I can see on your face and hear in your voice, like that's a heartbreaking reality. So where does my desire to do something about that go? Where does it fit in? And let's say I'm, I want to invite my friends to also join me in this thing. When do I invite them? Do I make sure they're Christians? Do I, I don't just like, you know, I'm just, I want to understand where does that fit in then for how you're seeing like cart and the horse? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Well, in the same way that I believe, you know, it's like, okay, justification comes first and then sanctification and all those things, you know, faith without works is dead. And so, but you, you still need to have faith. And then from that flows works and long obedience, you know, we've been saying this, let's look at the problem and, and then pinpoint what is, what is the problem and what is it that I could do as an individual, especially as a Christian with my resources, with my love, with my influence, that is the best way of going about solving or helping to solve or trying to solve uh, that problem. And so you have a private prison that's receiving all this money and you see who's locked up there could be specious reasoning is, is that private prison there to lock up black people? Or is there a reason there are so many black people that are locked up and then, okay, now let's reason back from that. Why, what is that reason? Mm -hmm. Why is it that, you know, 7% of the population is committing so many of the violent crimes in our society and ending up locked up for it. And why is it so concentrated on one, you know, okay, now let's back up from there. Okay. What is it that uh, I think it's 92. Gosh, I just saw the statistic and I wish I had it in front of me. I don't want to mess it up, but it's 90 in the 90 percentile percent of parents that are in prison are fathers. Hmm. So the majority of people who are in prison that our parents are fathers. Mm -hmm. That has a profound impact on the next generation. They may have grown up without fathers. Now this next generation Mm -hmm. is growing up daddies in prison and they fall into the same patterns. And then they end up fathers with, you know, one or two or three different women. And then now they end up in prison. And and so it's a a violent, vicious cycle of, of, of all that. And so is the church concerned, and there are tons and tons of churches that I, I do recognize are concerned with these things, and they're in the inner cities, they're in the areas in which people are experiencing these issues. Are they tackling the issue of fatherlessness and the the issue of men to live like Christ and, you know, raise their family in the way of the Lord and to stick with their commitments and, and things like that? Or are they more concerned with going after the politicians who have far more power and money and resources than you'll ever have on picket lines when we could just be going, and as Paul says, working with your hands, living a quiet, peaceful life, doing what's right, and, and going into those things. Why aren't Christian why aren't more Christians adopting? I, I think I've heard I've heard the the platitude, you know, uh, Christians are uh, pro-birth and, you know, they're pro, pro-birth, pro but not pro-life, you know, mm-hmm. which I think is, uh, statistically, it's actually not true. I mean, uh, 5% of Christians adopt children and every other group combined uh, only makes up 2% of adoptions in the, mm-hmm. in the world. And so that's a big discrepancy there, but 5% of Christians adopting is an issue too. Why aren't we adopting more kids? Why aren't we helping, as James said, pure religion is you know, taking care of the widows and the orphans in their distress. The church grew because they were doing those things. The, the early church had um, reputations as cannibals uh, because of the, you know, the Eucharist and also as uh, baby murderers, you know, infanticide, because they were taking on the burden of children that were being thrown out by society. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that you could extrapolate that onto beyond children, you know, people that are cast out by society. I think that's all, all good things. I guess one thing's I'm, one of the things I'm hearing from you is there's a delineation between 
individual action and systemic action, you know? Sure. And, and I just think like taking care of widows and orphans in their distress can be done individually. It can also be done systemically. It probably should be done both. So we should be open to fostering and adopting children if that makes sense for our families, you know, or even as single adults. Mm -hmm. But we also know that there are policies and norms in society that lead to widows, you know, like for instance, redlining black people into slums and ghettos contributes to there being more fathers in prison. And, yeah. and we can, but redlining hasn't been, hasn't been legal yeah. since the eighties. Right. Well, I know I'm just so, saying, but like the, Redlining is one of 10 plus systemic factors leading to those incarceration rates and underfunding of like schools, school funding being based on local income tax or local property tax is a a great example of a current thing that ensures that poor schools don't get enough money. Right. So terrible idea. So you can school choice should be a thing. You can care for widows and orphans in their distress at an individual level and at a systemic level. And ideally both. And that to me is, I mean, some of what I'm picking up from you is a preference for the individual level uh, or maybe that the church, because the church works on individual people, Mm -hmm. it's primarily working in that way. I would just say that I think that that's a pretty sort of Western individualistic view of the church that, for instance, the early church wouldn't have held when they held everything in common and you know, sold other stuff, even just in, from my understanding, an ancient Near East worldview would not be nearly as individualistic as we are here in America. I think that we are probably the most individualistic people to have ever lived on the earth, uh, if you could plot us. And so then I think, Mm -hmm. well, I probably should control for that. And, you know, whatever God wants is probably unlikely to be lined up with me being this crazy outlier, having been raised in the most individualistic country ever. Mm-hmm. And maybe I need to learn from my sort of um, majority world or global South neighbors about collectivism. And, you know, so there, there's all kinds of ways we, we can't get into all of that, but that's just, that's something that I'm kind of hearing. And it's not so much that I'm disagreeing with you about things that would work. I'm just wanting to put them into a larger context of like other things that would also work that seem to be just as uh, just as good of an interpretation of of that passage in James. Yeah. No, it's, it's, are those things a prerequisite for salvation or are those things an outflow of someone who is saved is, I guess, is a question. Yeah. Because the, the answer to darkness and the answer to lost and hurting and, and marginalized people isn't always a political answer, right? And so... I can only do what I can do in the confines of the the church that I'm a part of, the community that I'm in. I don't think that's so much individualistic as as opposed to realistic. I Mm. mean, uh, I I do agree with you that that we are highly individualistic. I I mean, even Paul says we are many parts to one body. Uh, We need each other. And so the hand can't say to the, the foot, I don't need you and so on and so forth. And so we all are individually gifted to be a part of a whole that when working together is beautifully. Some, some are gifted with the, the, the ability to give and some of them are gifted with the ability to take what's given and then, you know, use it to serve the poor and serve those who are marginalized and who are, you know, hurting in that way. But I think it was Chambers that says that 
God doesn't need better methods. He needs better men. I don't know if it was Chambers though, so don't quote me on that one. I think at, at the core of it, we need to be more and more like Jesus. And then the more and more like Jesus we are, the more and more we'll outflow the desire to seek justice, to love mercy, and to something that people, it's not an addendum, walk rightly with your God. That's just as much of the trifecta as seeking justice and loving mercy. Or it is, or they are constituent of it. I mean, you could you could read that one and two and three, or you could read it you that like one, one two plus one, or one two and three bleed together. They are themselves a Venn diagram, yeah. you know. And again, these are sort of interpretive options available to people. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I got well. We're we're well over time here. So I apologize. I, no, 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 no. I, I, I am the one who kept it going. I saw it and I kept going anyway. So not your fault. I guess I'll just, I'll just thank you. Thank you, Raymond. Obviously we found, I think we found, we definitely found some agreement. I think we found a lot of disagreement, but like not the kind of disagreement where I wouldn't want to get a beer with you, you know, and chat. Yeah. So yeah. If I'm next time I'm in East Anaheim, I'll let you know. Yeah. You can come see the Trump flags. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's not like that at all. Uh, but but if you had anything else, I I didn't want to. I don't mean to cut you off. If there's anything else you feel like, just to, to no, wrap I'm up. getting hungry actually. Okay. It's, it, and that that now I know why. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah um, well. Yeah. Thanks, dude. Thank you for your time. We'll put your personal website in the show notes if people want to connect with you there, and that's got links cool. to all your social media stuff, and uh, they should check out your worship music if they're in the market for that stuff. And did you have your own records or you just lead at the church? I, I did. I was actually, I used to travel a little bit. I was on a label and did, did that thing for a little while, yep. but now I'm just, I'm really in love with loving God's people and uh, loving them through giving them the word. And so I, I want to be versed in what Jesus has said. And, mm -hmm. and that includes the old Testament, new Testament and, and uh, being, so living my life in the spirit and, 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 uh, hoping that people will look on that and be inspired to do the same. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, thank you again so much. Uh, enjoy the conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you.